Have you ever noticed how often food is a common factor in getting together with people? Yeah, your family comes over on the weekend and you cook burgers on the grill or you get pizza. You set up something with friends and you meet them at a restaurant. You schedule a breakfast or lunch meeting for work, stuff for church or with your small group. And really often a meal is what it's organized around. And so in the last month or so, who have you had a meal with and why? Well, in this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, Elisa Morgan is going to lead the group and looking at how common it was for Jesus to do that, but how often his guest list was, well, different. Sitting down at a meal together is an act of hospitality and an act of a kind of intimacy where lives are shared, food is shared, lots of people come together, and Jesus constantly and consistently dined with this category of people in society who were called sinners. I want to look at several different scenarios of this, all from the New Testament, and look at what was happening. We're going to be focusing on what I'm calling sinners' dinners. So glad to have you as part of the Discover the Word group as they get set to embark in another hour or so of studying the Bible together. Discover the Word is the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries, and it's Elisa Morgan, Marty Hahn, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day around the table with you for this series called Sinners Dinners. A memorable title for what I think will be some memorable and perspective-shaping conversations based in these accounts in the Gospels that include a common practice, uh, eating. (laughs) But there's an aspect of these meals Jesus had with people that was unusual in the first century and actually kind of shocking. And you know, it would be pretty much the same today. At the very least, questionable, but unusual to the point of being shocking. But I think it'll be really good for us to ask some questions and then also ask some questions of ourselves about where we stand on this whole concept of sinners' dinners. So let's get another study with the Discover the Word group underway. Elisa? When you think of some of the most well-known or even notorious sinners, okay, in the New Testament and Scripture, who comes to mind? I think the right answer is probably everybody except Jesus. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Yep. I feel like even just that word sinner needs some like clarification of what it means Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. really answer that well. You put up quote marks as you said that. Mm -hmm. And so I have a feeling you're referring maybe to places in the scriptures where it actually says, and this person was a sinner or something like that, which would be maybe like the sinful. And I say that with quote marks, woman Mm -hmm. or some of those stories. Okay. So if I say Judas, that's not what Mm -hmm. you're thinking of then. No, it is. It is. I mean, I think, you know, the ultimate sinner, is it Judas? Because he's the one (laughs) who turned Jesus in. Um, And Daniel, you're right. There are those who are labeled the sinful one. But Bill, you're right. Every single one of us, every single person in Scripture, aside from Jesus, is truly, you know, a, a sinner. What do we think of when we think of that term sinner? What bubbles up inside of us, Daniel, to go to your question? Well, I get uncomfortable in some ways because I feel like it was a term that was used to kind of beat people over the head Mm -hmm. growing up, to make you feel really, really bad about yourself, to almost make it sound like, how could God even stand you? Oh, wait, Jesus stands in front of you. So like, that's all the stuff that comes to mind, all the baggage. From your growing up years. Yeah, all the baggage that I bring to that term. I relate. You know, what I bring to the table today is my discomfort with the fact that the the Bible, the scriptures make an issue of the category of sinners. I mean, we're not the ones using that category, right? The script Who invented it, you mean? Yeah, the scriptures mm-hmm. talk about the sinners. But I'm with you. I'm thinking, well, that's me. And I, th- I think we end up right. But why do the scriptures make a point of it? Mm. Good. Yeah, I think for me, what I bring to it when I hear the term maybe depends on the context in which I'm hearing that term. When I'm reading it in the narrative of the scripture and it's describing someone, I almost feel like maybe there's some shock value there. It's supposed to get your attention because apparently a person's life was such a a mess 
that they were publicly regarded in that way. And I think maybe there is some shock value to that. If I think about Billy Joel's song, I'd rather live with the sinners than die with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. (laughs) Only the good die young. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. if I hear it in that context, there's almost a flippancy to it Mm -hmm. that in no way, shape, or form takes the term seriously. And the fact that the Bible, to your point, Mark, does use that term means probably at some point, if we understand it properly, we will take it seriously. Mm. And I wonder if we can really land right there, Bill, and embrace the center terminology in a different way. We're uncomfortable with it. I know I am. And as I've been preparing these uh, outlines to chat about, I've been really trying to pay attention to how squirmy I get inside about the topic of sin and being a sinner in my own life. You know, scripture talks about all kinds of different characterizations. You know, it can be a disease you have that makes you a sinner. It can be an act you perform that makes you a sinner. It can be a part of society that you belong to that makes you a sinner. But when I look at my own life, and I go back to what Daniel was saying too here, I get squirmy because there is this part of me that's conditioned to clean myself up in order to be in relationship with Jesus and to dismiss and set aside and maybe even ignore or deny those parts of me that are so very needy still. And I kind of want to invite us all to scoop up the whole us as we have these conversations, all of who we are, because none of us are done. I'm fond of saying if we were done, we'd be dead. You know, we're all in process. And Jesus came for all of us and all parts of us. In these conversations, we're going to be focusing on what I'm calling sinners dinners, because there is a way, when you look at scripture, there is a reality that Jesus constantly and consistently dined with those who were sinful. And he said so. And I want to look at several different scenarios of this, all from the New Testament, and look at what was happening in these pictures. And we're going to start off today with two that are pretty common in our minds, tax collectors, Matthew and Zacchaeus, and look at what do we see in these interactions. Let's start first with Matthew. There's several passages that express what happened with Matthew and how he was called, but let's go to Matthew 9, verses 9 to 13, and can we just go around and read that, and let's listen for the word sinner, and let's also watch for what happens with Matthew. And Bill, would you start us off, Matthew 9, verse 9? Sure. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? (laughs) Scum, wow. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, verse 11, the Pharisees say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? There's the word. And then in verse 12, Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So why were tax collectors included in the designation of sinners? Well, earlier you said that Judas was probably the worst sinner because he betrayed Jesus. And in the eyes of the people of Israel, they saw tax collectors as the worst of the worst because they had betrayed the nation of Israel. They betrayed their people by serving as agents of the Roman government to collect taxes on behalf of Rome who had conquered them. So they really wounded their own people. And Luke talks about Matthew actually having a great banquet. Uh, the verses you read, Mart, talked about how many were invited to this, you know, and it's a big deal, this dinner. Jesus' response for eating with sinners and tax collectors is that he's come not to call the righteous, but sinners. He makes a point of this. Then let's look just for a moment at Zacchaeus, who is another tax collector. And this is from Luke chapter 19. We won't read it all right here. Basically, 
Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector and is wealthy, so he too has taken advantage of the people. And he climbs up to see who Jesus is. Jesus sees him and says, I need to stay at your house. And all the people saw this, this is in Luke 19, 7, and began to mutter, saying, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Hmm. And that term guest really means to be in the house and to be shown hospitality, which often includes a meal. Here's the thing. In New Testament times, as in our days, sitting down at a meal together is an act of hospitality and an act of a kind of intimacy where lives are shared, food is shared, we come together, lots of people come together, and Jesus sits down with, we first see Matthew, and then we see also with Zacchaeus, and shares a meal with this category of people in society who were tax collectors and therefore called sinners. What do you take away from that? First thing that comes to mind is you're right. If we're hanging out with somebody that we don't like or we don't really want to be around, then we call it a meeting, uh, right? <laughs> but, the, but here they're actually spending time eating together. And the fact that Jesus was becoming this well-known teacher would also bring so much honor onto a house by him going and eating there as well. And so like he's bestowing honor on Matthew and bestowing honor on Zacchaeus by going into their house as this teacher, as this rabbi. And Daniel, in that sense, it almost seems to me that what Jesus is taking on is the people's perception of the tax collectors or the people's perception of those that they consider to be worthless or scum. Yeah, I think that's right, Martin. I think that that becomes even more pointed in another passage in Luke where Jesus basically seems to wholeheartedly accept the accusation that he is the friend of tax collectors Mm -hmm. and sinners. Thank you, Bill. And that's in in Luke 7, right? Mm -hmm. Verse 34. Do you have that? Could you read that? Because that is a great way Jesus describes himself. Yeah, he starts off by talking about John the Baptist came fasting, Mm -hmm. and you said he had a demon. Then he says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Mm -hmm. And he kind of seems to be owning that title. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, we could probably just even title our whole conversations Friend of Sinners mm-hmm. here. That's very winsome to me. You know, we start out talking about all the shame we carry around and the heaviness and the discomfort we have with sin, and, and rightly so. But Jesus himself says he's come to be the friend of sinners. And then he illustrates it by inviting Matthew and Zacchaeus and other tax collectors and Scum, as your translation shared it, Mart, inviting them to sit down in an intimate act of dining. He creates sinners' dinners where all are included because guess what? All are broken and are welcome. What does that do to us as we think about ourselves and those areas we push aside and say, oh, I need to hide this when God says, I'm the friend of sinners? I think one thing that it does to me is I find myself becoming sinful in that it kind of exposes the way I look at other people mm-hmm. that I don't think measure up because of their particular oh, right. moral mm-hmm. sin that I consider. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hold on to that, Mart, and all of us, because that's where we're going next. Let's try and sit with this reality that Jesus is the friend of sinners. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for others? And what does that mean for our view of others? I'm going to spring a question on you, and and you may need a minute to think about it. Can you think about a a dinner situation, a dinner setting where you were super uncomfortable? I mean, just felt awkward and squirmy and ill. And I'll go first to give you a chance to think about it. My parents were divorced when I was about five years old, and I only saw my dad about one time a year. And he would fly to where we were, and he would pick up my sister and I, and take us out to dinner. And we were always like ordering steaks. We didn't know what to do. We're trying to cut them. We're little kids. And I remember him talking with my stepmother, his new wife, and I felt so awkward, just weird and uncomfortable. So that's what comes to my mind when I think about an awkward dinner. What comes to your mind? 
The only thing I can think of is just dinners I've been at where I didn't know anybody else at the table. And mm-hmm. so it felt mm-hmm. awkward because we were like trying to figure out what to talk about, maybe what not to talk about. <laughs> but it wasn't necessarily <laughs> awkward in a like I'm uncomfortable with the people. It was just I didn't know them at all. Okay. Okay. You know, what comes to my mind is that I remember years ago being invited to a dinner party and I felt so out of it. I felt like I was not up to whatever conversation was going to come. Mm-hmm. And so these people know so much more. They're so much more interesting than I am. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like, <laughs> how in the world am I going to get through this? That's so good. What we're hearing, I'm hearing, is a theme of inadequacy. You know, maybe I don't belong here and I don't know how to navigate this situation. And I'm pretty sure everybody has many of those moments when we're just not sure we fit in at a dinner table. We're looking at situations in the New Testament where Jesus dined with people. And in our last conversation, we looked at the stunning realization that everybody is welcome at a table with Jesus. Uh, The Pharisees were chastising Jesus for dining with what they called sinners, the tax collectors. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the things, and we hit at this at the very end of our last conversation, is that sometimes we're not comfortable sitting down at a table with people because we think, ew, they don't belong here. Mm -hmm. Most of the time we think we don't Mm -hmm. belong here. And yet Jesus said he came not for the perfect people, not for those who do it all right, the righteous as he called them, but he came for the sinners. So it speaks to this whole issue of inadequacy, of not quite fitting, of the squirminess of being sinful ourselves. Let's pause for a second and think, what do we really mean by the word sinner? What does that mean? Yeah. I know the term, which kind of helps me a little bit, means missing the mark. Mm-hmm. Like a, a, a target, a yep. bullseye, and you shoot an arrow at it, and instead yep. of going right at the bullseye, you don't even hit the target. Yeah. 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 Or even you just are a little off target or okay. something like that. So it's missing the mark. Mm-hmm. So that, that kind of helps a little bit. Yeah, it's similar to another word in the Bible that means crossing a boundary, you know, being out of bounds. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you're in the Gospels, Obviously, you're in a Jewish context, and they define sin based on Moses' law. So James would write later in the New Testament that if you keep all the law but fall in one part, you've broken the entire law. And breaking the law was what made you a sinner in their eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was James too. Didn't he also write that if you know the right thing to do and Mm -hmm. don't do it, that Mm -hmm. to you is Mm -hmm. sin? Yeah, we call that a sin of omission rather than commission. I've heard it expressed that way. Yeah. As we look at how Jesus actually sat down in a pretty intimate setting of a dinner, of a meal, and ate with people, there are lots of different stories of this in the New Testament. And we looked at how he ate with tax collectors in our last conversation. And now I want us to look at another meal that he sat down at. And and this meal is in Luke chapter 7. It's verses 36 to 50. And we may not read all of those verses, but you're going to see two characters highlighted, both of whom are sinners, if you will. But they don't really necessarily see themselves. One does, the other doesn't. In fact, what always throws me is that in Scripture, you know, the little headings in your New Testament at some kinds of sections in the narrative, this is actually called the sinful woman. That's her name. (laughs) I'm always like, kind of like, ew, about that. Again, the discomfort bubbles up. Let's read Luke 7, 36 to, oh, maybe 39 or so. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Okay, we're focusing first on the sinful woman. What do you make of this description? What strikes you here? Well, in another translation, it says, and behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Well, I mean, one? that makes it sound like she's the only one. <laughs> yeah. and, and we've already agreed that everybody was a sinner and is. And so just the fact that it describes her that way 
means that she was probably viewed as some kind of social outcast or pariah in the community, which some scholars may use that as a reason for thinking that perhaps she was a prostitute. Yeah, my translation says she lived a sinful life, which is more of an action-appearing description than a, a label put upon her. It's like she's actively, ongoingly living a life where sin is involved. So yeah, a lot of people have assumed she was a prostitute. Okay, so there's another character here, Simon. It's his home, okay? He's a Pharisee. And in verse 39, he says, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would know, just know, tell by her actions or tell by her reputation, what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. So Simon, does this Pharisee mean anything different by that than what you just described, Bill, or is that exactly what he means? I think that's exactly what he means. And I think he means that it probably in the most negative context that you could ever imagine. I don't think he's using this in any kind of a soft way. I think it has a hard edge to it. Yeah. And it's interesting that it says he said it to himself. So he hasn't said this out loud, uh, at least based on how the text presents it to us. He hasn't said this out loud in front of everybody, something he's thinking. Hmm. This is a powerful story. So just I encourage us all to kind of take a look at it again. It's kind of like a kaleidoscope. Every time you turn it, a different Hmm. facet falls into place because there are a lot of just quiet little cues as to what's going on. But great point there, Daniel. And one of the things I think, at least, that comes through is he wasn't just thinking of what she was in her behavior and actions. He says, if this man was a prophet... In other words, he would know her heart. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something really rotten inside of this person. That's right. And I also think that maybe he's even pointing out her current activity is continuing to sin. You know, talk about an awkward, uncomfortable moment. She probably had not been invited to this dinner. She well may have just kind of invited herself and come into this room, a room where mainly men were, of course, except for those who were waiting on him, and interacts here. Okay, how does Jesus respond to Simon? And so to the woman, Jesus is going, hmm, he's receiving this. And then in verse 40, Jesus answers Simon again, as Daniel said, (laughs) Simon said this in his heart, not out loud, but Jesus answers him out loud, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And he goes on and he gives this illustration of who owes the most from a debt, And he talks about how the woman honored him, how she washed his feet with her tears and she kissed him and she anointed with oil, giving him the treatment that Simon should have given him as Jesus was Simon's guest. He says in verse 47, what, Mart, what does he say there? He says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven so that she has shown me much love. But a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. That line has blown me away as far as I can go. What does that mean? Well, I think in the context, he's pointing to the different ways that Simon and the woman have responded to him. I mean, what you said a moment ago, Elisa, it was just common courtesy that when a guest came into your house, their feet were washed, they were anointed with oil, you gave them a kiss of greeting which Jesus says Simon had done none of those, but this woman, who is supposed to be the worst of the worst, has been doing that continually as an expression of her love. So she is showing much love, even at the risk of being publicly scandalized for it, while Simon has shown little or no love. Yeah. So she's done better by him than the Pharisee did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, he viewed himself as righteous. She was clearly repentant and grateful for the opportunity mm-hmm. to thank Jesus for his love. I think what's always bothered me, and maybe you all can help me think through this, is that line, the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. We always talk about like we're all sinners, we're all in need of God's grace and stuff like that. But it feels like in that that Jesus is saying like, Simon, I recognize that you've only maybe broken a little law here and there. There's only a little bit that I need to forgive for you. And that's where I've always like stumbled in this story a little bit, because I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, but it kind of feels that way. So I don't know if maybe you can help me think through that. What do you think he's saying? I think maybe where he's going is he's trying to make the point that Simon thinks he's really got it together. And maybe that's 
some of the play that Jesus does with the word righteous sometimes where he's like, you see yourself as righteous, right? So you think that you've got it all together. And so you think you've only been forgiven a little bit. And that's the reason you only love a little bit. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. When we go back to our illustrations of awkwardness and inadequacies at dinners, the inadequacy, the I don't belong here, the I'm not enough, we have two choices of what to do with that. We can stuff that down and say, I'm fine. And it's a silly illustration, really, because sin is not that flippant. You know, I'm fine. I've got it together. I'm keeping the law fine. Nobody knows what I'm struggling with inside. I'm covering it up. I can waltz in here. Or we can embrace our inadequacy of, I don't fit. I'm not good enough. I don't know how to do this. I'm in need. And when this woman's action was one that expressed her great need, Her life was filled with sin. She acknowledged it. And when you embrace and understand your inadequacy, your neediness, your sinfulness, if you will, your inability to keep the law perfectly, your inability to do it all right, and you ask for help in terms of vulnerably putting yourself out, that's when Jesus forgives. And the more we access that neediness in us, and the more we bring that to Jesus, the more he can forgive and therefore free And Simon missed the whole thing. He stayed imprisoned to his need, and therefore he was not freed. You know, Jesus' illustration of these two at this sinner dinner is the one who would sin the most, is the one who's forgiven the most, is the one who's freed the most, and the one who's denied their sin the most and judged everybody else is the one who remains imprisoned. Simon was so focused on the sinful woman, the one whose sin was obvious to everyone, that he missed the fact that everyone who is invited to join Jesus is a sinner in need of a Savior, and that includes you and me. You're listening to Discover the Word, and you're at the table with Elisa Morgan, Marty Hahn, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day in a series called Sinner's Dinners. And uh, the next part of the conversation, you're going to get to use a skill that uh, you may have developed from watching too much TV. Uh, One of the most popular genres of TV and movies and podcasts and novels is crime mystery, and particularly solving murder mysteries. You ever get into one of those shows or series of books? They can be actually pretty engaging, almost addictive. You may want to access some of those skills from watching those shows for the next part of our study, Sinner's Dinners, after a quick time out. We're grateful to have friends like you joining us for these conversations. And we want to thank you for helping us to make life-changing resources like Discover the Word, the Our Daily Bread devotional, and lots of other Bible engagement resources available to people in over 150 different countries around the world. It's the voluntary giving of friends like you that makes all of the resources from Our Daily Bread Ministries possible. Your gift today, no matter the size, will help us continue to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible accessible to people all around the globe. You can show your support by giving online at discovertheword.org. Click on the Donate tab there on our website. You can simply click on the Donate tab at discovertheword.org. And now back to our series, Sinner's Dinners. And uh, Lisa wants to approach this one from a unique angle. You know, you may have been to this kind of a dinner or you may have heard of them, but I'm thinking about it's a murder mystery dinner party. (laughs) And you show up and everybody is assigned a character and you go through the meal discovering various clues as to there was a murder committed, there was a weapon used, and there was a person. You eventually are going to discover who actually committed the murder. And you spend the meal kind of suspect of everybody around you, and maybe (laughs) of yourself if you're the murderer, you know, if you've been named it. But it's kind of a quirky thing to do. Have you ever done that or heard of that? Can I just stop you? I don't have a clue what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't have a clue. You know, maybe that would help. Mart, uh, most of us have played the game 
clue, right? You know, where there's um, Colonel Mustard and Miss Scarlet and the rope. Colonel Mustard in the conservatory with the candlestick, right? Exactly. And you roll the dice and you're handed out cards at the beginning of the game. And one of you is the murderer and you try to disguise that. And everybody goes around the game board and figures out what the clues are and finally discovers who was the murderer with what weapon and in what room. Uh, so each person knows something. They've been given a card. They know about themselves, but the others don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So the dinner party part is like, imagine real life yes. clue without a real life murder. You're just acting like it. And exactly. And so everybody has clues and pieces and maybe it's under their plate or maybe there's a little card that tells them something. And then part of the fun is you're talking to people throughout the meal trying to glean more information as you're talking to see if you can solve it by the end of the night. <laughs> I was thinking about that game, whether it's Clue or the murder mystery dinner game, and I was thinking about that and wondering what if everybody at the table was the criminal. Hmm. What would that be like? You know, as you were saying that, Elisa, Mm -hmm. I thought about the Last Supper when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And all the disciples looked at each other and said, is it me? me? Am I the one? I mean, their first assumption was that they, the individual, were going to be the one who was going to betray Jesus. That's exactly right. And, And you're leading this conversation now, Bill, into what we've been talking about, sinners, dinners. Jesus seemed to make a habit of dining with sinful people. And where we might think that's just a certain type of person, he began to make it clear that it was every person. Every one of us is broken, and therefore every one of us is sinful, and therefore everyone is invited to dine with him. In this conversation, I want us to look at a really familiar dinner. And I'm not sure we'd necessarily think of it as a sinner's dinner, But when we dig into it, we'll see that it is. It's the dinner in Bethany where Mary anointed Jesus and someone got super uncomfortable. In fact, several people got uncomfortable. Let's read the story and let's take through it this concept of roles. Who's occupying what role in this story? And are all of them criminals or is there just one bad guy here? Okay, let's look at John chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. And Bill, would you start us off? Sure. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard And she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with a fragrance. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Mm. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Okay. So the context here, this is the day before the triumphal entry, just days before the Passover and the crucifixion. We're in Bethany, and a dinner is given in honor of Jesus. Now let's look at the characters, and let's look at the roles that they served here. Go back up to the very beginning. The first character mentioned is, in verse 1, Lazarus. What do we know about Lazarus? Well, he used to be dead, and he's not anymore. (laughs) Which is kind of why the end of this story is kind of ironic, because they want to kill Lazarus, but then that could set Jesus up just to raise him up to life again. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. And the Lazarus role, sorry, I wanted to point that there, is the party is given in honor of Jesus because of Lazarus, okay? So who's the next character we see? Martha. Martha. And what do we know about Martha. She's doing what she does. She's serving. Okay, she's serving. Good. And then the next character is in verse 3. Yeah, Mary. What do we know about Mary? She's at Jesus' feet doing what she does. Right. (laughs) Good. Okay, you keep going, and there's Judas. What do we know about Judas Iscariot? 
Well, this is one of those times that we see the text nod ahead to something that mm-hmm. hasn't happened yet. And it's mm-hmm. giving us a hint that this is going to be the same Judas who will later betray Jesus. But then it also gives us kind of a hint at the fact that he's the keeper of the money bag and he takes money out of it for himself as a thief. So there's a lot packed in there about Judas. Yeah, John kind of editorializes on that yeah. to give us a hint at motive. Because one of the things we've talked about before when you're in the narrative is it's really dangerous to ascribe motive to a person if the text doesn't do it. Well, here the text does it. It gives Mm. us his motive. Yeah. In fact, there's a noun, a descriptor used very specifically, and you mentioned it, Daniel, in verse six, he was a thief. Hmm. Well, that could be another word for sinner, right? He, He was a messed up guy. He messed up. Okay, then Jesus, of course, is a character here. And then in verse nine, do you see another character? A large crowd. A crowd. And what are they about? Well, they've heard about this miracle Mm. of Lazarus coming back to life. And so they're coming to probably see Jesus as well as to see, is it really true that Lazarus was raised? Yeah. And then verse 10, one more group of characters. Who are they? Yeah, the leading priests. Okay. And they're making plans to kill Lazarus. Okay, now back way up. And here you are at the dinner party. Okay. (laughs) Here you are playing Clue. Who's the obvious criminal here? Who's the obvious murderer, if you will, in this mystery game? Well, the chief priests want to be murderers, apparently, because they want to kill Lazarus for being alive. Mm -hmm. Judas gets the most verses attached to his name, and they aren't flattering verses. They make him look pretty rough. So true. Yeah, but he's going after Mary. Yep. Yes. And why is he going after Mary? She's wasting all this good perfume. Mm-hmm. It could have been. Because he's so concerned about the poor. The thief is so concerned about the poor, he's going to let Mary have it here, right? But if we look in the context to each one of these characters, I think it's fascinating. You know, Martha is serving. Was serving always the best thing that she did? Was it always a good thing, I'll put it that way, that she did? Think back to her interaction with Jesus when he was teaching Mary and Martha was in the kitchen worried about many things. What did Jesus redirect her about? That Mary's attitude and posture of worship Mm -hmm. was a more significant exercise than even the preparation of a meal, as important in the culture as that was. That's so good, Bill. And and when you think about Mary, here she is anointing Jesus' feet. What else do we know about Mary? When Lazarus died, how did Mary respond at the tomb? Was she happy? Was she mad? Was she doubting? Was she struggling? She was really upset with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Martha's comments in John 11 about the death of Lazarus seemed to have with it this kind of lacing of hope that Mary's comments don't carry. Yeah, you see in John 11, Martha has turned a corner and, you know, sees Jesus as the Messiah. Mary is having her faith tested, and she then begins to see Jesus as the Messiah as well. well what I just want to propose is really what you pointed out, Bill, when you talked about this murder mystery dinner game that we started out talking about reminded you of the Last Supper where everybody goes, you know, Jesus says, somebody's going to deny me and everybody goes, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? We're looking at this story of, of people playing these various roles. Martha is serving. Mary is anointing. Lazarus is celebrating. And Judas is objecting and pondering, turning Jesus in and denying him and betraying him. The chief priests are making plans to kill every character, really, at some level or another, is a character who's wrestling with sin, is a character who's been touched by sin, is a character who is being given the opportunity to look in the mirror of their own lives Mm -hmm. and recognize their own need. Do you think, Elisa, that maybe that's reflected here? John focuses on Judas, but in Mark's account, I think it says all the disciples That's right. uh, joined together to mm-hmm. protest what Mary was doing. Great point. I mean, Judas is the one that's singled out here, but really it was bigger than just him protesting. He's the voice, but he does represent all of them. All of them are objecting. You're absolutely right. He's just the one, and Mark lets us see that, who picks up the first spear of criticism and hurls it. You know, he's just the first one. When I back away from this story and I look at myself as if I'm a character in this story, there are those who've received Jesus' forgiveness and understand their need, and there are those who are still denying 
their need. And the reality is that I think yet again in a sinner's dinner, one of Jesus's moments, you see this intimate expression of him acknowledging the sinner and also loving the sinner as a beloved. Mary's the chief illustration of that. She who doubted is now completely given over. And just as John is foreshadowing Judas' betrayal, he's foreshadowing Mary's ultimate gesture of love as she anoints his body before death. Mm. Bottom line, every one of us, in whatever role we're playing, we carry the guilt of being a part of sin. And Jesus embraces that. And yet at the same time, we have the opportunity to embrace what he says is also true of us as we reveal our need to him. We're beloved by him and received by him as we allow him to forgive us our sins. You're listening to the Discover the Word podcast and a study called Sinner's Dinners. Because the Gospels tell us that it was a common practice for Jesus to dine with sinners. Jesus included the most messed up in his dinner table conversations. And uh, this next one that Elisa has the group looking at is one that she calls the ultimate sinner's dinner. Now, what elevates this one to that level? Let's find out. Now, you guys are guys, I know. So you may not know what I'm talking about here. I'm liking how this is starting. Keep going. Oh, do you like this? Do you like this? In high school, we did this goofy thing where we would take turns, and on one of our friend's birthdays, we would arrive at their house at like five in the morning, and we would get them up and take them out to breakfast just as they were. They didn't get to put on anything different than what they had on. (laughs) Okay, so it was a come-as-you-are kind of party, you know? Mm. And it was always super embarrassing and funny, and we giggled and et cetera. (gasps) Now, have you guys heard of that? Nope. I don't remember doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like I said, you're guys, so you probably wouldn't have done that. Have you ever been to a come-as-you-are party? I like the concept, but I have to admit I've never even heard that term before. Yeah, yeah. See, I I just take it as being a, oh, it's neat, it's going to be casual. You know, you don't have to dress up. Mm. I like that. Mm. And I think, you know, if we really look at that in terms of our conversations about sinners dinners, I want to suggest that come as you are is a phrase we can use of how Jesus really invites us to his table. He wants us to come as we are, you know, whether we're in our pajamas or our sequins, you know, he wants us to come as we are. And that really means how we are on the inside, as well as how we are on the outside. And that means everybody, not just some people. So now I've drilled it down into seriousness. <laughs> so we have to we have to get serious here. We've been looking at sinners dinners, settings in Jesus' life where he dined, shared a meal with other people. We've looked at several and we've discovered that the main thread is that Jesus invites all of us to come into an intimate relationship with him. All of us are sinful in that we've missed the mark in some way. And yet, when we come to Jesus, we're forgiven. There is a kind of continuing to come to Jesus as we are, as he continues to love us. I want to take us to what is maybe the ultimate sinner's dinner in Scripture, because it's the table that Jesus sacrificially created for us all to remember and re-partake of the love that he has to give us. It's the table of the upper room. It's the dinner of the recreated Passover before his death. So let's read Matthew 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Okay, this is just a preamble to the dinner that I'm talking about. And in our last conversation, we talked about how Judas was preparing to turn Jesus in. Okay, in verse 20, here's the dinner that we're talking about. Bill, would you read that for us then? When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. 
They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. And in our last conversation, we talked about just how everybody would be looking at each other going, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Mart in verse 23. He replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declare long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. And then Judas said, the one who would betray him, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. You know, I think just in these quick verses, they're so sacred. But I think we have a sense of what I'm talking about, come as you are, and we're all sitting around this table. Some of us feeling, "Mm, you know, I fit here. I showed up pretty decently. I'm not embarrassed. Others going, you know, am I the one who's going to create the worst sin of all kind in terms of turning Jesus in? And Jesus knows exactly the condition of everyone's heart as they have come as they truly are. What do we find out actually happens to each of the characters? We know that Judas is going to dip bread into a bowl. John tells us this in verse 13. It's part of the Passover celebration, but it could have been any of the disciples. You know, what's interesting is that Peter is the leader. He's kind of like the voice of the guys, right? Mm -hmm. He thinks he's above it. Yeah. He says, no way, I would never. I'll die with you. Yeah. What I think is really interesting too, Mart, on top of that is while all of the disciples saying, it's not me, is it? None of them are saying, it's probably that dirty, rotten Judas. He's probably the one who's going to do it because he's a bum. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all think, well, Judas probably walked around with a scarlet B for betrayer on his forehead or something. Mm-hmm. But there was nothing about him that gave any of them the impression that it was a slam dunk that Judas was going to be the betrayer. Yeah, even when Jesus said, the one who you know takes the bread from me, yeah. He walks out and they still don't see it. They can't imagine that yeah. it would be Judas. Yeah. I wonder too, just with the whole narrative arc of the Bible pointing toward that all have sinned and fallen short, I almost wonder if in some ways this gospel is written to nod forward to that a little bit in the fact that if you think about it, all of the disciples actually betray Jesus when it comes down to it. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, like they're passing around this bowl, right? And each are sharing this bowl with Jesus, each are sharing this meal Mm -hmm. with Jesus. And so, yes, Judas definitely gets credit, the wrong kind of credit Mm -hmm. for doing the wrong kind of thing. But when we think about everybody at that table, they all play their part in betrayal, including when that time comes, all running away and leaving Jesus on his own. Yeah, in fact, would you read Matthew 26, 56, one of y'all? I've got it. Jesus is speaking, but all this has taken place that the scripture of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So you're talking about Peter denying him after Jesus had predicted, and he said, no way, I'm all in. We see Judas planning, but then all of them, all of them run away. Let's read the words that are really familiar that Jesus provided in this, as I call it, ultimate Center dinner. Let's pick it up, Matthew 26, verses 26 down to 29, and go around. And Mart, would you start us? All right. And as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. And then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it. For this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. As I said, this is the ultimate sinner's dinner. Jesus knows that each one of them is going to slip away. Each one of them is a sinner, and each one of them will continue to sin in some way. And he offers these words, these words in a a new Passover, in, in a new sinner's dinner of ultimate hope. What do these words really mean in the face of all who dip their bread into the bowl and partake of it? What is Jesus saying he provides for even us here? Himself, right? I mean, this Mm -hmm. is ultimately representing his broken body that dies on the behalf of the people that would betray him and all who would miss the mark. 
Yeah. And we are then encouraged throughout Scripture to recreate this kind of sinner's dinner around what we call the Lord's table. As we partake of communion, uh, we're invited to come as we are, sinful, sinners, forgiven, freed. And yet Paul surprises us, I think, a little bit with a recognition that we too can slip and betray, (laughs) dismiss, deny Jesus. I'm thinking of his words uh, to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, somebody can get verse 28, and it's a context of where Paul is writing to how they may have messed up in their practice of the Lord's Supper of communion. Daniel, do you have that? Yeah, so right before that, he warns them not to eat the bread and cup in an unworthy manner. Mm -hmm. And then in verse 28 says, examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we come as we are to receive Jesus' forgiveness. And yet as we practice our relationship with Jesus, you know, Paul's really encouraging us to examine ourselves too. Are we bringing all of ourselves? Are there pieces of ourselves that mm, we're stubbornly holding on to that we don't want to give over, that we're going, no, I prefer to betray rather than be beloved by my Savior? I need to examine myself. Come as you are and yet come aware is maybe what I think Paul is saying as we join in this ultimate sinner's dinner today, ourselves, as we practice what Jesus did for us. All are invited, and all can respond, and all can come as they are, and yet all need to come aware. Yeah, we're all invited to come just as we are, to dine with Jesus at his table. Come as we are, but aware of our great need. Group will wrap up this study called Sinner's Dinners with a conversation about a backwards surprise party. What is that? That's what I want us to imagine as we bring our conversation on Sinner's Dinners to a conclusion. Can I just ask, like, does that mm-hmm. happen? I don't know. I just, <laughs> I just thought of it when I was looking at this. And I thought, whoa, what would that be like? That's a backwards surprise party. Well, you will find out more about what she's talking about after we take a moment to look ahead to where the group will be going for our next Discover the Word study. If you wanted to know what the future was going to be like, is there a book in the Bible you might go to? Yeah, Revelation talks about the coming apocalypse, right? Would it be fair today that the word apocalypse has kind of been co-opted? Because we hear zombie apocalypse Mm -hmm. and (laughs) post-apocalyptic, which means after some global catastrophe or something. Sure, you're exactly right. You know, through Hollywood and Mm -hmm. the way the word's been used in the popular media, it's come to mean end of the world, catastrophic end of the world. But when we use it in terms of Revelation, yeah, Revelation does have references to the end of the world and God coming to bring judgment and end time salvation. But primarily the word apocalypse just means an unveiling, an uncovering. So no zombies are going to be involved, right? Right. But a lot of other creepy things, yeah, okay. And so next time, New Testament scholar Dr. David Mathewson joins the group to talk about how to read one of the books of the Bible that we have a huge amount of interest in, but one that we're often not so sure what to do with. How do we read the book of Revelation? Well, join the group next time as we talk about The Reveal, Reading Revelation, on the next Discover the Word podcast. And now, the conclusion of our series called Sinner's Dinners. Everybody's been to a surprise party, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, you gather at a certain time, you're hiding behind the couch or in the garage or something, and the guest comes in and you all jump out and yell, surprise, surprise, surprise. You know, usually it's a birthday. Sometimes it's a retirement or something. But... Yeah, some people love it and other people are really angry. <laughs> oh, man. My mom listens to Discover the Word, so this would be a good time to share this story just so I can say I'm sorry again to her. But when I turned 16, she planned this like amazing surprise party for me. 
And leading up to it, I had a sense that something was going on, but didn't know for sure. And I went on and on about how I hate surprises and I would not like it. (laughs) And she was like, I just decided we had already planned it. So we're going to go through with it anyway, which was so kind of her to do. But um, anyway. (laughs) And how did you respond, Daniel? Did you get angry? No, I was happy about it. Yep. So, yep. Bless yeah. her heart. You, <laughs> you know, the surprise of the surprise retirement party is if you didn't know you were retiring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a firing rather than a retiring. <laughs> yeah. But you would be embarrassed or angry if you just felt like I would have uh, presented myself better, right? Rather than yeah. being embarrassed. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, exactly. I would have dressed up differently, would have washed my hair or something like yeah. that, right? I'm thinking about, let's turn it around just a little bit. What would a backwards surprise party be? I think it might be when you're going about creating a party, but you don't know who the guest is going to be. Okay, you're surprised by the doorbell rings and a surprise guest is there and you don't know who you've been preparing the party for. That's a backwards surprise party. And that's what I want us to imagine as we bring our conversation on sinners dinners to a conclusion. Can I just ask, like, does that Mm -hmm. happen? I don't know. (laughs) I just, I just thought of it when I was looking at this and thinking about this. And I thought, whoa, what would that be like? So carry that in your imagination forward for a bit. (laughs) We've been talking about sinners dinners. What have we said? It's been a meandering kind of messy conversation because guess what? That's what sin is like, right? And that's what our understanding of ourselves as sinners is like. It's like, I know I'm messed up. I know I'm broken. I know that I'm not perfect. But as I come to Jesus and I let him love me and forgive me and free me, I discover there's all kinds of ways I didn't know that I was messed up and a sinner. Jesus describes himself as a friend of sinners. And he sits down and dines with those who are sinners, both the righteous and the unrighteous. He makes it really clear. And we've looked at lots of different kinds of sinners. What have we looked at so far, those that Jesus dined with? Well, our first conversation was about a couple of tax collectors who were hated and considered the enemies of the people, and that's how they got categorized as sinners. Mm -hmm. Good, Yeah. yeah. And it was interesting, too, because in a lot of these stories, even that term sinner was something that was put as a label on tax collectors or on this woman by other people. And Jesus, by being a friend of sinners and by eating and dining with them, is almost saying, yeah, but they're with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so there's like this friendship and this care for those people that the world has labeled sinners that Jesus shows in each of these stories. Yeah. And a lot of the labeling that you're referring to, Daniel, of sinners is done by the religious. Mm-hmm. Those who view themselves as righteous will view others who aren't keeping the law they think you should as sinners. Yeah. And I think that's been one of the big takeaways through this whole series is the propensity of thoroughly religious people, including me, no doubt, uh, how easy it is to label others and to criticize others and to judge and condemn others. Honest, yeah. And then that shows up in a very real way when Jesus takes the person who doesn't measure up and shows that like this woman who poured out the perfume. The sinful woman. Yeah, the sinful Mm -hmm. woman. And Mm -hmm. Jesus Mm -hmm. makes it pretty clear that Mm -hmm. she's done better by him than the guys Mm -hmm. at the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we moved on and we looked at Mary of Bethany anointing in her home with all kinds of people present. And Judas was the apparent sinner there. And yet every person in relationship with Jesus, Martha, Mary, Lazarus, you know, everyone had come to grips with their own need for him. And then we moved on to the ultimate sinner's dinner in the upper room where we saw all of the disciples eventually run away and deny Jesus. And Jesus pours out himself. He's going to do this on the cross. He recreates a Passover meal. He redeems a Passover meal in a whole new way and offers it to us to partake of his presence for our own sinfulness, mm-hmm. you know, as much as we need to, to draw near to him. As we bring this to a close, I want to read a passage that has surprised me. There's that element of surprise again because of who the guest is at the sinner's dinner that we're actually going to be inviting in. This is a passage from Revelation chapter 3. And let's just set the stage. What is the book of Revelation? And what are the first several chapters about in the book of Revelation? Somebody give us a little bit of background there, if you will. It's an unveiling or a revealing of not only the condition of the world, 
but also even more so, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus himself being revealed mm. uh, in contrast to the condition of the world. And in the first several chapters, there are seven letters written to seven churches. And what do the letters basically describe? Describe places where churches or people in these churches are suffering and struggling, but then also some places where they're taking on some of the characteristics of the culture around them and not truly representing the love and grace and identity of Christ in the world. So we could say they're still struggling with sin, correct? Even though these are the body of Christ, they're the people who belong to Jesus, they're still sinners. You know, they're still discovering ways in which God wants to continue his refining work in them. Mm-hmm. The one letter in Revelation three fourteen to 22 is written to the church in Laodicea. And let's listen to what's going on in that church and then to the words that Jesus says. So could somebody start in verse 14? I can. Thanks, Daniel. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe you, and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent." So we're hearing basically that they're what? Well, they must be loved because he rebukes those that he loves, and he's there been rebuking go. them. So they must be greatly loved. And yet needing rebuke, right? Yeah, they think they're doing better than they really are, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. which is a pretty good description of probably most of us most of the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or at least me, all on yeah. that one. And he talks about some very specific things, lukewarmness, hot and cold, and it's all kind of based down into the fact that Colossae was 10 miles east and had cold springs of pure water, and Herapolis was six miles north and had hot springs, and Laodicea was in between with tepid water. So he, he's using an analogy here and talking about. So that's maybe familiar to some of us, but he is saying you're not as pure as you think. And I love you. And I'm going to tell you so. Sweet, beloved ones, you're still struggling with sin. Now, verse 20. Mark, would you read that? Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and we'll share a meal together as friends. Wow. You have a surprise guest at your door (laughs) who's knocking. You're going about your day. You're preparing your meals. You maybe think you're going to have some guests coming over that night. The doorbell rings. The dog barks. The kids run. Everything's happening. Mm -hmm. The timer goes off on the roast in the oven. The TV's loud. you got to turn it down. You rush to the door. You open it. Are you expecting to see Jesus? Who are you expecting to see there? And are you expecting to see whatever he wants to bring in with him? Here you are not hot or cold. Here you are tepid. Here you are thinking you're better than you are. And Jesus stands there in his purity and his victory and his refinement. And he knocks at the door and you open it. And he rebukes those that he loves. And he disciplines those that he loves. And the doorbell rings and you open it. How do you respond? I think I hold the door close to my left side with my right side pressed against the door frame, and then I yell to the kids to start cleaning behind me while I try to keep Jesus stalled at the door. Stalling Jesus at the door, like that. Yeah, I think this is one of those situations, Elisa, where we know how we're supposed to react, but how we're supposed to react is probably different from the reality of how we might react in that moment. And how does what we've talked about in our last conversations shape how we might choose to react? What have we learned about Jesus and his sinner's dinners? What is his heart like? What is his presence like? What is his desire like for us? Mm. Well, in those conversations, we saw that we're all in the group of sinners. And here in this one that you've led us through, it's almost like we're allowed to come to the conclusion, you know what? We're pretty worthless. We're like lukewarm water. Mm -hmm. It's not good for much of anything. Mm -hmm. 
And yet Jesus, to those who have come and brought to the place of feeling like they're kind of worthless, he says, I'm at the door, let me in. Mm-hmm. We can have yeah. a good time together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, He's still the friend of sinners. Yeah. 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 Even lukewarm ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's like a lot loaded on this if in verse 20. Mm-hmm. Listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, it's, mm-hmm. I think what we've learned about Jesus is in these moments, if we really do hear his voice, there's something about him that'll make us want to open the door regardless mm-hmm. of the mess mm-hmm. behind us. And, and we may stand at that threshold, as you were suggesting, Daniel, and keep our foot against the door, stalling. You know, And that's the moment in between hearing his voice and opening the door. And in that moment, maybe that's the place we pray, Lord, I'm willing, but I'm scared. Help me have the courage to open the door as you surprise me in my life with your desire to heal and love and restore me. Help me trust you. We take a deep breath as we might with an unexpected guest, any unexpected guest, and we step back trusting that he means good that he means grace, and that he will come in and dine with us. I stand at the door and knock, and whoever hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him. So God, in this moment, may we pause, listen for your voice, and open the door. Come in and dine with us. In your name, amen. great reminder that Jesus is inviting us to join him, to have dinner with him, in a sense. Yes, even sinners like you and me. You're listening to Discover the Word with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And I think reflecting on that invitation from Jesus in the book of Revelation is a fitting way to wrap up this final conversation, our series called Sinners Dinners. Now, Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And don't forget that next time, the Discover the Word group has New Testament scholar and professor at Denver Seminary, Dr. David Mathewson, at the table with us, for some conversations about how to read the book of Revelation, the reveal, reading Revelation. That's our next study together on Discover the Word. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.